back. It's another episode of Cluster Fudge. I'm joined with Alex once again, and our mutual friend, Stefan, is in the studio. Stefan. Hello. Stefan is here. Hi, Stefan. We are all old friends from 30 plus years ago, and uh, so coincidentally, or appropriately, we are going to be reviewing a television episode that we watched together uh, 30 years ago. And it is an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, one of, if not the favorite of Star Trek Next Generation fans. The Best of Both Worlds aired 30 years ago from this recording. That's right. That's right. Not the Van Halen song. No. Although you can play it leading up to your watching of this episode. You could. If you are a big Van Hagar fan. (laughs) I like it. I like it. Yeah. uh, Well, it actually originally aired or was released on June 18th. But in our area, for some reason, and due to syndication, it's not all released at the same time. So we got in our area in South Florida on June 24th, 1990, which would be the season three finale of Star Trek The Next Generation. And I know Stefan and I had a chance to rewatch the episode last night. And uh, you said, Alan, you will we'll just have to go by memory. I'll just go by memory, but uh, I'm sure I'll remember it since it is one of my favorite episodes. So, yeah, go ahead and recap for us this part one of best of both worlds. Well, part one, uh, you know, to the point, you know, we were all big Star Trek: The Next Generations fans. We, we all, the three of us, would get together on Saturday nights. We would all, uh, you know, figure out who was going to go on the bicycle and get the McDonald's prior to the Star Trek show, and then we, you know, eat and watch the episode. I don't know why, but for some reason, I know that we were not together for this specific episode. Um, I know I did watch it by myself, mm-hmm. and um, they, Star Trek had never done a two-part episode before. So you're watching the season finale. They reintroduced the character of the Borg, which had been introduced in season two, um, which were this enemy that just seemed un- unbeatable and just going to kill and murder everybody. Um, they reintroduced them. And so it was this ominous threat. I know they did original music for the episode, which was very kind of spooky and climactic toward the the resolution at the end. And just my personal experience from watching it back in 1990, um, I was when they say you're on the edge of your seat, I was literally on the edge of my seat. Like I looked at my seat and I was on the edge of it. And they're at the end of the episode, the captain, Captain Picard, is uh, kidnapped by the Borg. And the second in command, Commander Riker, gets promoted to captain and has a decision they've developed a weapon and he has a chance to uh destroy the borg ship with his captain on it and he gives the order to fire and then the screen turns to black and it says to be continued and the in my opinion it's the greatest cliff television cliffhanger of all time (laughs) it's been 30 years i still i mean i've watched breaking bad i've watched lost i've watched a lot of television since then i have not seen anything that rivals that um it just just the fact that you're the build-up to it and the anticipation and then the screen turns to black and you see executive producer gene roddenberry Mm -hmm. and you're like okay i'll wait a week and then you're like no it's Mm -mm. june i have to wait months (laughs) before i find you're like oh my god this is so anyway, what was your thoughts thinking it, Alan? Yeah, well, I remember the episode as a whole, but what you described are kind of the most exciting aspects of the episode. But there was a lot of stuff set up ahead of time uh, because they did know. Well, first of all, early in the episode, they have to send a message back to Starfleet. We have encountered the Borg mm-hmm. and they get uh, uh, Commander Shelby 
on the yes. uh, on the Enterprise because she's been studying the Borg all this time, trying to figure out what their weaknesses are, how to combat them. Riker and, and Shelby butt heads a bunch mm-hmm. in this episode, and uh, eventually. Picard does get kidnapped. He becomes the character Locutus, the the mouthpiece of the Borg, because normally they speak in one voice. They don't have a single representative of their race. And so Locutus of Borg is who Picard becomes, and now you have Captain Riker and First Officer Shelby in command of the Enterprise. Right, that's correct. And it was a a really cool uh, shuffling of now Picard is the enemy, Riker finally gets this sought-after position, he gets to become the captain of the Enterprise, that's kind of been his dream, and uh, also I think most of the series leading up to this point, Riker has kind of been that Captain Kirk-esque character with the same middle initial and everything. And (laughs) he's been the guy leading the away missions on the planets and such. The the traditional Captain Kirk role that Picard just didn't quite fill. He was his own. He cut from his own cloth. And so now seeing the captain of the Enterprise be Captain Riker and he's more of a Captain Kirk type captain of the Enterprise. And it was kind of fulfilling a lot of fans uh, dreams Mm -hmm. in this respect. But uh, like you described at the end of the episode, he says, fire the, the, the weapon that Geordi LaForge had been working on. And then we don't know what's going to happen until after the summer hiatus, which was really uh, a cool aspect of it. But yeah, sure. it was the most action you would typically see in a Star Trek Next Generation episode. Most episodes were more focused on. Let's introduce a new culture. How do we deal with this new culture? Oh, there's a problem. We got to work around the idiosyncrasies of that culture. And so now it's like we have a new culture, but it's someone we're at war with. And now how do we deal with that? So, yeah, it was uh, I, I, I understand why most fans consider this their favorite, if not single episode, but two parter. And it's interesting you say that before. I want to get Stefan's thoughts here in a second. But um, it's interesting how you say, like, it was so action-driven. So, you know, Stefan and I had rewatched it last night, and it had been many, many years since I had seen it. And I was very interested in actually how little action was in the episode. Um, the episode was very entertaining. The dialogue was great. The interaction between, you know, Shelby and Riker and then, you know, losing Picard and everything – but there's really very, very few action sequences in it. I mean, the pacing is great and everything, and it's just like, I, you know, my memory was just like, I thought there was so much more action in it. But Stefan alluded to the point was that, you know, we're just so used to more action now that mm-hmm. then that was that was a lot. Anyway, what, what do you... Uh, I agree wholeheartedly <laughs> with your assessment. <laughs> it's why we brought him along, folks. Yeah, thank this, you. Thank you for your contribution, Stefan. Although, I don't know if I would call the Borg a culture as so much as they're more of a virus, some kind of techno-organic virus that's just eating up everything that comes in their path. So... Interesting, yeah. I mean, that's full of, yeah, that's, that is fair. I define them as a culture simply because they do have unique qualities as a, quote, collective uh, that would separate them from any other alien race. Yes, they collect other cultures and, and stuff, but, you know, they can incorporate a human or a Romulan or a Ferengi, yeah. but they're still going to have those same... They're the most racially inclusive species that <laughs> ever existed. Yes, to a fault. <laughs> and then the, the, you're still going to see like 
similarities with the Borg implants and the covering of part of their face and, and the ship cubes that they travel around in and the way their technology works, that they are completely decentralized both uh, hardware-wise as far as their ship construction and culturally. They just are all quote-unquote equals. You know, you could say it is, it is a perversion of communism if you want, but it's everyone is absolutely equal. There's complete loss of freedom, but they work as a collective. They don't have arguments. They yeah, just all... Yeah, purely artificial life form like data was considered obsolete by the Borg, some old technology that they were going to just... Right. Away. They weren't even going to incorporate him into the Borg at all. Yeah, and that I they found fascinating that. In, mm-hmm. in that episode, because I think leading up to that, you would think, oh, they would they yeah. would love someone like Data. I think but for them, the importance is the mixing of the improvements of the bio, uh, biological aspects of humanity or whatever species Correct. with the technological yeah, Exactly, yeah, because they, they actually hold high regard to techno, or excuse me, organic life forms and then incorporating their technological yeah, implants into them. And I think with a quote-unquote positronic brain, they're like, okay, you're simulating biological thought, mm-hmm. but what do we need? We've, we've already maximized to be fair, biological brains. studied him to use some of that technology with their own technology. You'd think that they would they, yeah, assimilate they, exactly. his technology. So they, I agree. Yeah, they the technological aspect of it. Right. Yeah. But, um, uh, but yeah. it was interesting writing. It was, it was yeah, I think as fans, we were, we were kind of like, surprised mm. at that reaction saying that data of all creatures was obsolete when he's the most advanced creature that we right. know of. I didn't see a point either of a, of a spokesperson why they needed Picard beyond <laughs> me. They, I mean, they just go, they take what they want and they're, and they, that's all they really care about. They don't need a spokesperson. That they they don't. The plot, I understand. They, but I think it might have been more so that the transition would be easier. I think they're trying to say that their culture, that, that the humans or whichever. <laughs> Futile. It's futile that are mm-hmm. That they would be uh, more easily to be incorporated into yeah. the society and more encouraged and willing participant because, you know, the Borg would it'd be a lot easier if everybody just bowed down and, you know, surrendered instead of having to fight. You know, it, it, would, it would be a quicker thing. So if they had a spokesperson, maybe they could convince them that it'd be easier to join them and, and, and show the benefit to both societies. I think they, they saw the human race as so inferior for like sending one cube when they have thousands that they didn't even consider us a threat at all. So whether they had Picard or anybody yeah. else, I don't think that that would have mattered. But they had, for the plot, I understand they needed to have some kind of focal point like Picard, rescuing Picard. And, and, and you know, gosh, I mean, so 30 years later, you know, that episode just has far-reaching impact on the entirety mm-hmm. of the Star Trek universe. Yes. Just from that episode, I mean, you know, the character of Seven and Nine of Voyager probably doesn't happen without that episode, you know, and then Star Trek Picard asked, uh, started last year, and all of that is relevant. The movie Star Trek First Contact, every, it's, it's almost in every facet of Star Trek culture from then on, from it started with that episode. Yes, and to a fault, I would say, because it seems like the movies and Picard, the subsequent series, like they never really understood what the strengths of Star Trek The Next Generation as a series was. They were just like, oh, well, what's impacted uh, Picard the most? It's been his kidnapping by the Borg and how it affected him. And so as a result, they've never really escaped this episode. And unfortunately, in doing so, you've ignored other episodes that have also impacted Picard uh, significantly. 
Sure. Um, for example, another two-parter that later aired with uh, David Warner's character, the Cardassian, that, oh, uh, yeah, that he, was, he had ki- mm-hmm. kidnapped Picard. And that never has been referred to. And yet we haven't seen Picard... He was tortured any for like more or something. Degraded. The, the flute episode where he spends an entire life lifetime <laughs> yes. in this other culture. He grows he grows old and dies in it. And right. That's kind of been lost too. That that is absolutely true. <laughs> and there was a relevant um, reference to that that could that was completely overlooked in the new Picard series. He's talking to a character who's had all these memories implanted in her. The, the android character. Oh, yes. And, like, he's, like, dismissing her l- mistrust of him because she's, like, well, he's, like, how can you mistrust me? I, I'm, I'm, I'm doing all this. I'm Jean-Luc. Yeah, I'm, I'm Jean-Luc Picard, and, and yeah. how can you not trust all these wonderful things I'm doing for you just because you've had your life complete lie (laughs) and it's like you know you lived an entire lifetime in an implanted memory and now you're just going to disregard Mm -hmm. implanted memories is how that affects you um but yeah i just found out i'm not human could you give me a few minutes to? (laughs) (laughs) like what does that mean when your whole life is a lie i know kung fu and i never learned it Mm -hmm. So, Best of the Worlds aired, and then, uh, you know, we had to wait months all summer. It was, like, the end of September, and for me, again, I was watching it on my own for some reason, so thanks, Stefan and Alan. But, um, mm-hmm. no, what was funny was, you know, um, so my family's Jewish, and the season premiere aired on the Jewish holiday of Yom Kippur. So, it aired on a Saturday, so Yom Kippur was on a Friday, went all day Saturday, and you're required, um, especially as a male, you fast, you atone for your sins, that kind of thing. So, basically, since Friday night, I hadn't eaten, mm-hmm. and Star Trek Next Generation comes on at 7 p.m. on Saturday. So, it's time to eat dinner. I haven't eaten in over 24 hours. My mm-hmm. mom's in the other room yelling at me to come to dinner, and I'm like, I don't care. Star Trek's on. <laughs> I've been waiting four months to find out what happens after Mr. Warfire. <laughs> I, I, I'm, not even, I'm not at all hungry. That's like, it funny. just... Yeah, so that that was my memory of of watching the premiere. I was just so excited of it coming on. Um, never had any sort of anticipation for a TV show like that ever. Uh, I mean, I I again, like I said, I, I I challenge anybody to come up with a better cliffhanger in a show. I, so we weren't with you for part two either. No, I I don't know what happened with that. <laughs> I, think I was home alone myself. I was oh wow! Because you guys had a habit of talking a lot during the episode. <laughs> that came <laughs> later though. Drove I me think. nuts. Yes. I bet. So for that one, I wanted to be. We we were big <laughs> mystery science theater fans, yes. and so I think we chimed in a lot on the Star Trek episodes. Yeah, yes. yeah. You could have done it on repeats. <laughs> but okay, I. I <laughs> Stefan Stefan didn't care for that, yeah. So part two of Best of Both Worlds, we can discuss that if you like. Uh, yeah, I Unless mean, part you want to wait full three months. <laughs> to- part two wasn't as, as strong as part one. The mm-hmm. weapon obviously doesn't work because Picard was briefed on the weapon, so the Borg were already ready. Mm-hmm. Um, so Riker had to... There, there was an interesting conversation in the episode where, where Guinan, played by Whoopi Goldberg, who was always a big confidant of, of Picard's, um, when it comes and talks to Riker and, and tells him that he has to let go and he has to be his own person. And, um, it's the only way he'll beat Picard. He'll, the only he way is. he'll beat Picard. And, and yeah. And so Riker develops his own strategies and they, you know, they end up, 
Staging a mission, distracting the Borg, splitting the ship into two pieces. They beam on board the ship. They're yep. always able to beam on board Borg ships easily for some reason. I don't know how that happens. <laughs> yeah, through shields. <laughs> through yeah, shield. mm-hmm. whatever. It's beam, beam board. Star Trek science doesn't matter. <laughs> mm-hmm. So they kidnap him, they bring him back, and then they find a way to sneak a, a, a word into the collective to tell all the Borg to basically go to sleep, and then somehow that activates some sort of self-destruct system, and the Borg blow themselves up. It was kind of neatly placed together in their 40-minute conclusion. I guess it was okay. Uh, I, I did know the follow-up episode, which I haven't seen in a while, and I know it was kind of slow, but it it dealt with Picard visiting his family on Earth and, and the psychological impact and trauma that came with that. And that was nice that Star Trek touched on that. They mm-hmm. didn't just like, oh, he's fine now. He's the captain. Let's go off and fight more aliens. Like, they actually yeah. took another That's episode, PTSD, too. And they continued that, you know, all the way through First Contact and other things. And But like you said, it's interesting that they just honed in on that and not the David Warner episode and not the inner light and not all these other things that happened to him. Right. Even his heart problems when... You know, when he was a kid and he was stabbed by the Nausicans and and in that one episode, and he was supposed to have died, and Q saved him. Mm-hmm. He, he a lot of stuff happened to him, but yeah, yeah. The, the Borg thing was the biggest, I guess. Yeah, because mm-hmm. so. it was a fan favorite episode. And like, what makes money? The fan favorite thing. Let's just focus on that. And they don't quite get that there's other stuff we like, right? You know, but they're like, well, if yeah, we're, we're going to invest all this money, it better be a safe bet. You know, it's too bad they didn't revisit the Shelby character. I know yeah. some of the Star Trek literature out there actually revisited the Shelby character and had her on other ships and, and as a character. Um, I never read any of the books with her in it, but I, I know that they continued with her character because it was an actually interesting character. But Also, the book that you shared with me around after this episode aired, which was Star Trek Vendetta, mm-hmm. uh, written by Peter David. Who, uh, if you listen to my Made in the Trade podcast, I've reviewed a few comic book stories written by Peter David. Amazing author. Excellent. He's so well-paced, and he's such a big Star Trek fan, amongst other you know Marvel comics and DC comics he's written. But uh, the novel I'm referring to, Vendetta, involves uh, Guinan, Whoopi Goldberg's character once again, who another member of her race, who all members of her race she considers siblings. So there is a... A sibling of hers, a sister, who has gotten a hold of a later version of the quote-unquote Doomsday Machine from the original series uh, episode, The Doomsday Machine. And that, according to this novel, was designed to be a Borg weapon. It uses planets as fuel in order to just carve up Borg ships and wipe them out of existence. Mm -hmm. And so Picard has to uh, communicate and relate to Guinan's sister who is piloting this doomsday machine and kind of talk her down. And there's basically a whole big battle between the Borg and this newer doomsday machine. And uh, amongst it all, they capture a Borg and try to dissimilate her, much like they dissimilated Picard. And this is before there was a Seven of Nine. And unfortunately, yep. the results were not as successful as Seven of Nine's dissimulation. Yeah, I don't. I I remember the book being fantastic. I still have my copy of it, but I haven't read it since I originally read it. You know, twenty five years ago. But yeah, that that was excellent, excellent. Basically, anything by Peter David is is pretty much gold. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, to that point, actually, it was referenced. Um, you know, it was about two weeks ago. I think uh, it was a website called GalaxyCon, and they had a uh, they they do these Zoom meetings 
where they take a bunch of sci-fi actors and they put them together with a moderator and you can type in and ask them questions. And it was really cool. So they did one with uh, Jonathan Frakes, Denise Crosby, and John Delancey, uh, you know, Riker, Tasha Yar, and Q. And so Alan and I had, had watched it, and it was actually pretty good. And John Delancey actually mentions his time of writing the book IQ with mm-hmm. Peter David, yeah, um, which I haven't read that one, but actually seems pretty cool. Um, so it was an interesting podcast to hear their takes on things. Um, you know, they, uh, I, you remember the story better, Alan, something about the, the Star Trek costumes. So Jonathan Frakes had a story to share that a lot of people didn't know about in the panel, but I didn't know about as a fan, which was at some point, some fan stole a tractor trailer filled with Star Trek costumes and then negotiated, I guess, with the studio to sell them back in exchange for the uh, uh, Trans Am that played Kit on the series <laughs> Night Rider. And so uh, apparently they did an FBI sting operation out in the middle of the Nevada desert to do this exchange. They do the exchange, and then the FBI just helicopters in and arrests the guy. Right. <laughs> so did, it's like... Did Kit play any car, part in the arrest? Or? Uh, I, yeah, well, they actually... He mentioned that they actually had to get an actual Kit car from <laughs> Paramount, uh, put it on a flatbed truck, and drive it out there to make it all look legit for the guy so that they would do the swap. They gave him the car, and then well, he thinks he's scot-free. I talk to the car first before I, you know... You'd be like, Kit? Kit? Wait a minute. <laughs> this car's not talking back to the me. The car's yeah. decelerating yeah. and then stops. And they're like, what's wrong with this thing? <laughs> I can't allow this. <laughs> well, at least it's bulletproof. No, it's not. It's not bulletproof at all. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what's wrong with people. <laughs> but yeah, that was, that, was a, that was a funny story. That was the highlight of the, of the cast, I thought, there that they were that they were talking about. It is cool, you know, in this whole COVID era where we can't really convene at conventions anymore, that uh, they are attempting to do remote conventions. Uh, later on in July, they will have a scheduled San Diego Comic-Con, but it'll all be online. And oh, really? so anyone okay. from anywhere in the world can now see the panels live free of charge you don't have to worry about waiting in two-hour lines to see your favorite celebrities talk about the latest news of your favorite series. It's all online. So I think that's, that is some benefit uh, to this whole downtrodden pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I'm curious to tune in to see if GalaxyCon has any other uh, casts. I know there they, was one last week. Yes, uh, we missed, actually, but. in July, there will be another Shatner interview. Oh, cool. And so we can see Shatner be Shatner and talk right. about I himself. Mean, if you tune in, you know, make sure you have a lot of time on your hands because he talks <laughs> he, so He loves horses more than Star Trek, so yeah. you know. Right. So I found a couple of other interesting um, Star Trek tidbits in the, in the interim since our last podcast. So originally on Star Trek The Next Generation, they had a, a chief engineer. I think his name was Lieutenant Argyle. Mm-hmm. And I don't really understand, you know, Jordy LeVar Burton was a main character. He was listed in the opening credits, but they had him as a lieutenant junior grade. I don't know why they just didn't make him the engineer mm-hmm. or why they wanted to feature him and have somebody else as an engineer. It didn't really make much sense. Well, I think the point of his character was that they would have a blind person piloting the starship. That was the intent oh, for that okay. character initially. And then it just kind of transformed into this. Okay. And then they're like, hey, you know, we don't have someone, we don't have a main cast member in engineering. 
and we don't want to lose data as second officer on the bridge. So right. we're going to put Jordy down there. And Jordy seems kind of a, a tech guy as it is. So right. it seemed to work out. So the actor that played Lieutenant Argyle, his name was Biff Yeager, which I think is a very funny name. What was very interesting about that is so Paramount said, OK, well, we need to have a chief engineer character. And they featured this guy and they seemed to like him. And then they were getting Paramount was getting all this fan mail. Uh, and they're like, oh, we really like, you know, Lieutenant Argyle. We want to make, you know, he should be the chief engineer. I know they're trying to do this. And so Paramount's reading these letters and they were going to do that. And then all of a sudden the Paramount executives looked at the letters and saw that they were referencing episodes that hadn't aired yet. I've heard this story. I know what you're talking about. Go on. Yes. And so they said, well, how could they be referencing episodes that hadn't aired yet? And they did some research and found out that the actor, Biff Yeager, was writing the fan mail about <laughs> himself in order to go ahead and give himself a permanent role on Star Trek. Yeah. The Next Generation. That didn't work out so well, because as we know, Jordy LaForge soon got promoted to right. chief engineer. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I think the, the, the folks involved were like, yeah. You're fired. Yes. <laughs> you can't do this. Sorry. Yes. Biff Yeager disappeared from history, much like Biff Tannen in Back <laughs> to the Future Part 2 when he changed history and disappeared. Yeah. So, anyway, I, I thought that I was I mean, it's, it's a great idea in theory, <laughs> but yeah, you, you, you messed up, dude. You yeah. got to at least wait for those episodes to air. Yeah. Very, very silly. So, I'm sure he saw this whole thing as like, hey, I'm, I'm the next Scotty. <laughs> and James Doohan was a prominent role in the original series. Why right. am I not a more prominent role? Yeah, they uh, that wasn't the way the folks in charge wanted you to be. Yeah, turns out he was the next uh, chief medical officer on Voyager. If you remember that show, that guy gets killed in the first episode. Oh, that's why we have a hologram. That's right, doctor. the hologram. So there was another funny thing that I read, too, uh, talking about Voyager. Uh, they were talking about, I don't know how you say his name, Garrett Wang, Wong, whatever mm-hmm. it is. Okay, he played Ensign Harry Kim. So he gets the part to be on Star Trek. It's like his first acting role, and he's so excited. And he loses track of time, and he's supposed to be on the Paramount set at a certain time to go ahead and get fitted for his uniform. So he's running late, and he doesn't want to be late for his first job. So he's driving through the Paramount lot like a madman. And all of a sudden, some dude comes out from behind a car, like, you know, out of a studio, like, walking by, and he has to slam on his brakes. The car, like, taps the guy, and he, like, freaks out, like, oh, my God, I just almost killed this guy. The guy that he almost killed was Harrison Ford because he was leaving some shooting for Clear and Present Danger, which was also on Paramount. Mm. And so Garrowing was telling the story about how I, I almost killed, you know, Indiana Jones, Han Solo. Mm-hmm. Like, that was me. You have to wait for Kylo Ren. I did it long before. <laughs> so he is a, He's quite a nice guy. Um, in Dragon Con, if, if you're not familiar with Dragon Con, they have different tracks. And what that means is they have different uh, categories. So there's a Star Trek track. There's a uh, comic book track. There's an anime track. There's a science fiction. There's a science, like actual science track, like NASA people will come for that. Oh, okay. But so like every panel that's of a certain category is listed in that track. So you will have, you know, Patrick Stewart will be in the Star Trek track, or you can find a NASA scientist in the science track. Or in the anime track, you'll have a voice actor that played in the anime, or maybe an animator or a writer. Anyway, that's how Dragon Con works. It's a conglomeration of all different fantasy and, and just what we all are interested in. And in any case, the person in charge of the Star Trek track many years ago was a bit of a disaster. Um, <laughs> okay. He once had um, 
George Takei go up on stage and sing On the Road again so that he could duet with him in this karaoke and so that they could sing the line, We're the Best of Friends. That could be his moment. Okay. He also happened to be um, openly gay, like this, the person running the track. Right. So I guess this was an all-around fantasy as a Star Trek fan and a fellow a homosexual that he could actually be, quote-unquote, friends with George Takei on stage. That was just one example of him embarrassing guests at the Star Trek track. There was oh. another time when Patrick Stewart was asked to do a, a, a line reading, a scene with him, and he's like, no, I'm not going to. And he's like, <laughs> okay, but you didn't say you weren't going to with this cutout of you, and he had a cutout of Captain Picard, and oh, then yeah. Patrick Stewart was like, there's not a chance in hell. <laughs> I'm going to do a scene with that. And so anyway, long story short, this guy lost his position as running the Trek track for Dragon Con. He was subsequently replaced by Garrett. Oh, and okay. Kim. So an actual Star Trek performer got to be in charge of hosting most of these panels. Yeah, that's great. As well as organizing the panels in Atlanta, which I thought was really cool like he's not just a performer he's a star trek fan and loves working with the star trek fans right as a whole so that was my <laughs> that was my story about garrett wang i've only been to one convention a long time stephanie have you ever been to a never convention no, no. my list i got a bucket list <laughs> <laughs> there's all sorts of conventions all around but um you know when this pandemic is over uh and if you're in the orlando area i recommend megacon if, as far as conventions as a whole, uh, if you're willing to make the trip up to Atlanta, I highly recommend Dragon Con. Dragon Con is unlike any other convention. Most conventions take place in a convention center, like the Orange County Convention Center right. or the San Diego Convention Center. This takes place in multiple high-rise hotel convention rooms. And so as a result, for almost a full week, Fans are huddled up into all these high-rise hotels. They're not just attending all these conventions. They are partying together, visiting bars together. They're doing dance parties and whatever events at, in all these panel rooms after hours. And it is such a community of just fans, either in costume or just hanging out as, as communal fans. It is nothing unlike anything else. It's just a 24-hour party of fans just hanging out. That Yeah, that sounds awesome. I've mm-hmm. always wanted to attend something like that and just, just check it out because I've heard that, you know, that's the biggest one and it just seems really, really cool. Yeah, and whereas San Diego Comic-Con has the reputation of literally being the biggest convention, it's where all the media happens and the big news breaks, it's not the same communally as Dragon Con. It is, Dragon Con is just a celebration of fandom and half the time people don't even care who's the guest. It's mm. just, I want to be there for Dragon Con. Right. That Comic Con yeah. almost seems too big. When I look, watch it on the, on the news and everything, it seems like I don't even want to get into that. And it is long yeah. waits, and you know you might see a couple panels for the weekend. And yeah, people are there to meet celebrities and see news break for sure, but it is like a, a nightmare of a, a Disney vacation. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like coming from Florida, logistics. Yeah. Or, you know. <laughs> exactly. We deal with enough lines, well, you know, in the past year, actually. Mm-hmm. So. But now we can see it from our living room, so that's cool. Yeah, that's great. So, uh, you finished V? I did. So, I finished V, the final battle, the copy okay. you had loaned me. And, uh, yeah, so I've seen all of it. At last, our recording was 
Michael Ironside had recently been introduced. Right. There was a uh, a spy sleeping with one of the uh, with Daniel with yeah. Daniel the sympathizer of the visitors, and not sympathizer. He was a a, a visitor youth, I guess, mm-hmm. whatever it mm-hmm. was. And any case, so I've seen the complete V to V, the final battle. I'm, I'm caught up. Oh, I enjoy, no, I enjoyed it. <laughs> uh, I enjoyed it. No, it's so it turns out that they came up with a. Uh, a bacteria to kill the aliens because they found in the uh, intestinal tracts of the visitor uh, half-breed born that the one that was more uh, reptilian died. The one that was more human survived, and they found that the cause of death was this new bacteria that had never been seen on Earth before. And so they utilized that to wipe out the visitors. The War of Worlds type. Of it was thing. definitely little, inspired. It was inspired. Yeah. But by what it. was really interesting, even now, was just like you know. So the the whole series starts off you know with a, a fascist socialist takeover of the world, mm-hmm. and then it ends with a virus. Oh. <laughs> yes, yeah, so a lot of parallels with the. So. I'm not saying, I'm just saying, but <laughs> <laughs> there was, there was subterfuge. There was a, uh, a virus, a disease that wipes out people and, and yeah, no, it's mm-hmm. an interesting, interesting parallel. Yeah. Stefan, Stefan said he never saw it. I have the copies right here. I'm going to, I'm going to loan it to him. I and, remember mm-hmm. one episode of a guy ate a mouse. That's the only thing yes, I remember. That is in yeah. final battle. That, that was, that was enough at the time. I don't remember. That, well, we were little. That, we were, I remember we that were like too. Like seven or eight years old. I, re- I saw that live on TV, and yeah. I was like, "I'm done. Yeah, I I'm done. Oh, yeah. I can't watch this." <laughs> it, <laughs> it, it's, it's so tame by compared to today's. Oh yeah. I mean, eating a mouse. Wow. I mean, they do that in the Survivor shows now. Right. Right. <laughs> uh, well, the, the groundhog though was the worst one. I mean, the, there was the mouse when in the, when in she the eats v, the groundhog, yes. and, and her then you see the jaw dislocate and the, and, the, and the bulge in her, in yeah. her neck, which was a really cool effect because it was like her, and they must have—I don't know what they did to make her neck bulge like that, but that well, was a they, really cool effect. They, it appears that they did a mold of her face, and that is like an artificial when it's dislocated like that. that yeah, that you could see was a little yeah. fake, but but when when the bulge happens afterward, it was it was her face, and mm. I don't know what they they must have done. I don't know what they did. But. Oh, maybe a rubber balloon attached to her neck, something right. to the effect. So I had spoken before on a previous podcast about you know Kenneth Johnson did the first two episodes, and then he didn't do V the Final Battle, but in two thousand eight he wrote a book V the Second Generation. So. Here I have the book, V the awesome. Second Generation. My wife got it for me for Father's Day. The she, closest we'll get to a sequel, a sequel. to yeah, Final Battle. It even Battle. says on here, the highly anticipated sequel to the thrilling miniseries V. So nice. What's that? So it is the sequel. Yes, but we don't have a, a movie. Vi- oh, a visual. Okay, okay, a visual. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So um, it was funny, too. You could see the book's a little beat up. She said she could only find a used copy, which I thought was interesting. Mm-hmm. But as she was shopping, you know, Amazon says, oh, you might like. Mm-hmm. And she found this, and I thought this was really fascinating. This was written in 2017. This is another book I have here. It's called, it has a silly title. It's called Fascist Lizards from Outer Space. But the subtext is the politics, literary influences, and cultural history of Kenneth Johnson's V. And I skimmed through it, and it seems to be very, you know, uh, about, you know, socialism and, and, and fascism and so mm-hmm. forth and how uh, the culture of V can affect people. I mean, it goes on to talk about, you know, obviously V was inspired by, I had mentioned before, the 1935 book, It Can't Happen Here, mm-hmm. um, written by, uh, I think it was Sinclair Lewis, about a fascist takeover of the United States, a man who becomes a president and then turns it into a fascist society. 
Um, so that's how the original V was inspired. And I know this book here references that and how it all ties together into Nazi Germany and, and a lot of other things. And I, I found that very interesting that, um, you know, based on today's society and, you know, the fact that we've been talking about V, that it's, it's uh, relevant. So. And you had mentioned the ending of Final Battle being a bit cheesy, and that was in reference to the, uh, the, the human uh, half-breeded uh, child. The star child, as they call it. Is her. that what she was called? Like, yeah. Well, so whatever. she apparently was literally and figuratively the key to <laughs> surviving the Doomsday Device that the, the visitors had, had programmed on their spaceship. And inexplicably, she just holds these two levers and it, it just saves the day. <laughs> and right. the, the, all this music and like the main characters like have their jaws gaping and like in confusion and wonder. And then, and then everything is fine. And it's like, why? <laughs> well, the why is it, it's, it's a, it's a subtle why, because earlier in the episode, She's saying like pretenama, which means peace. I remember that. So her way to say there should be peace between the races was to deactivate the device, and that's what she wanted. That's that. Oh, was the whole. I'm not saying the motivation why. I'm saying right. why does the child have this ability to like? How does she know how to deactivate uh, the thing? Yeah, how does she know that it works? Ridiculous. It's just I'm just going to do this thing, and oh, it worked. Right. Yeah. It was not set up. At all, but and, yes. and and funny, you know, you'd mentioned something previous podcast, which I thought was you were really impressed by, and you know, I am too. Obviously, that you know, the set design, the massive sets, and mm-hmm. all the stuff they had to build just for this miniseries, or the props, and like the props, and all the stuff, the so, shuttles and stuff. Yeah. So I don't even remember the the Doomsday Device. It, it looked it had like uh, I don't know five bars on it, and they were colored, and they would count down. You know, they would mm-hmm. disappear, and there was like a little panel. I remember a long, long time ago, uh, an old episode of Knight Rider aired, and there was a bomb they had to deactivate, and it was the same panel. Nice. Obviously, because that was also on NBC. They, mm-hmm. they did find a way to reuse a thing from V yeah. in an episode of Knight Rider a couple well, of years Well, and later. that's the thing, right? That's why I was so surprised of these, these shuttles. It's like, I don't recognize these from other series, because... It's an initial huge cost. So that's why you will see stuff like that on Knight Rider and such. It's like, oh, we've still got this. Mm-hmm. Well, we sunk, you know, what, a quarter million dollars designing and producing this thing. We may as well get some more money out of it. And I didn't see them recycling anything from anything previous to V. So that, that really surprised me. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All in all, it was a good good miniseries. It, it, it does taper off toward the end. I like the additional Michael Ironside's character and some of the mm-hmm. other things they have my my favorite is still when they try to take over the hospital um and use the uh the media to go ahead and convince everybody that you know the visitors are a threat without Mm -hmm. you know uh making the broadcast go away but uh it's definitely definitely worth a watch and i'm interested to see where kenneth johnson supposedly takes it in the book here so um i will read that and i will fill that in on a future podcast read that and check that out my father's day gift might be something you'll you'll be interested in it was a graphic novel called star trek versus transformers (laughs) okay and it is the g1 transformers Uh and the animated star trek oh okay so it's you you see the cat lady and all them and they look like Uh they're drawn just like they were in the filmation it's a comic it's a comic book yeah okay and uh, I, I'm going to read it, and I'll, I'll let you know what I think of that. Yeah, that sounds interesting. And it was written recently? Yeah, it was written within okay. the last uh, couple of years. Okay, very mm-hmm. neat, very mm-hmm. neat. Um, I did see, you know, usually we have some Transformers. The only Transformers things I got this week, I mean, the big thing was that, that new, uh, the new Transformers Netflix show, they finally have a release date. It's July 30th. 
Um, you can go on YouTube. You can look up the trailers to it. It looks really cool. Um, you know, my son is obsessed with every version of the Transformers. He's seen the trailers. He's excited for it. Um, I can't say enough about the toys they're releasing out there. I just happened to get a, a cliff jumper from the new Transformers Earthrise series, and he comes with the cannon from the first episode of G1 Transformers, which breaks apart into three weapons. He transforms awesome. It's, it's very screen accurate. So many of these toys, they the transformations are great. They're screen accurate. They come with a lot of homages to the original series. I mean, they, mm-hmm. these designers really took the time to go ahead and, and have fathers and sons or fathers and daughters or whatever really, you know, love the toys all over. We just recently discovered that the tripod for the, the sniper scope weapon he has also double as skis that the Autobots used in one episode to like traverse across the ocean. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, that's so brilliant. Cause like I was, you had transformed it. And like these two things, I was like, what, where do these go? And he's like, Oh, that's just for the gun. And I was like, I bet you there's another use for these. And I looked under it and it's sure enough that they double as skis right under their tire, his front tires. And it's just so clever. Like one episode, they use these, these skis is really cool. I mean, you know, like, like we had said before, they've made so many issues of Optimus and Megatron with the ax and the mace, which they've only used in that one episode. Yeah. Meet more than meets the eye part two when they're on Sherman Dam and they're fighting and they, they just, now they're just standard. They're just standard. You cannot get an Optimus prime without an energon ax. Yeah. They really should have used more of that, but I don't remember that at all when I was watching that. <laughs> I think it was either the first or second episode. It was the right? second episode. On second top episode. Of they're Dam, they're yeah. doing a, a a you know duo fight, and uh, it's just one on one, and it's just it's just you and me, and then their their hands retract into their forearms, and then out comes either respective. Well, the live action he has a sword, uh, Optimus. Uh, right, and that's inspired right. by that okay. red axe. But like anyone who remembers that second episode is like, oh yeah, the red axe and the and the mace. And when those toys first came out, we didn't get that. No. You know, we just had to imagine that. And then many years later, it seemed like every toy iteration had that as an option for your Optimus or Megatron. Really cool. Yeah. And then, I mean, you know, keep in mind, Stefan doesn't have any children. So, you know, Alan and I have... We, our memories are not as good to remember 35 years ago. We've just seen them more recently. Yes, that's true. Did you happen to catch the Bill and Ted's trailer? I did. Um, it's it kind of little blips and, and memories. Like I specifically remember the uh, Keanu Reeves and Alex Winter as big buff prisoners. Uh-huh. Like they're these steroided up huge muscle, like they're wearing a muscle suit of some sort. And uh, that seemed, that was probably my favorite part of the preview. Mm-hmm. Um, like seeing them play a different character, a different pair of characters, but the rest of it was like didn't really move. It didn't me. impress me. No, yeah. no. Yeah, it was kind of. I mean, am I going to see it? I mean, I'm probably see it. I don't mm-hmm. know if I'm going to see it in the theater, but well, who knows what's even going on with the theaters anymore? But uh, yeah, too bad Carlin can't be in it. Unfortunately, he's uh, yeah, he's not around. Ho- hologram. I, I can know. find a way to bring it back. CGI him like Grand Moff Tarkin and Rogue <laughs> Rogue One. Which was which I thought was great. Mm-hmm. I, I was I was so happy to see that in Rogue One. That was that was really cool. Mm-hmm. They uh, actually you talk about George Carlin. I thought was funny. There was a really really great TV series that was out uh, a couple of years ago. What was it called? Timeless. Mm. I think it was. I don't know. 
Um, it was on NBC, and then it ran for I think a season, and then fans wrote in, and they made him have a second season, and then didn't get, and then they. The fans, they tried to cancel it again, and then fans wrote it, and they said, we don't want a conclusion, and they made a two-hour movie conclusion, so that was really good, and it was mm-hmm. about, uh, they were going around in time, and there was a guy with a time machine, and there was another group of people with another time machine, and the first person was trying to mess up events, and they had to, like, fix the events, and there was an overarching story and a government conspiracy, really, really good shows, a lot of stuff about history, excellent show to watch with your kids, to teach them about history, they go into all these different time periods that are not like, oh, I'm just going to go to World War II, now, like, they go to, like, other, like, very small events in history, and you really delve into it, like, all the stuff about the Alamo that I didn't know, and, and really cool stuff, but anyway... The scientist guy that's part of the the, the three-person good guys is a history teacher, um, a military guy, and then the scientist guy who knows how to operate the time machine. Well, his name in the show is Rufus Carlin. Hmm. And I'm like, that's obviously an homage to Bill and Ted's because right. his name was Rufus and then George Carlin. I thought that was pretty funny because mm-hmm. like, I don't know how many people would have picked that out right away, but I thought it was pretty cool. Right. But that's a show to check out. If you like sci-fi and time travel stuff and history, it's... What's it called? Timeless. Timeless. Cool. Yeah. yeah. It ran two seasons. I don't know. It shouldn't... Like, maybe 25, 30 episodes, something like that. But, yeah. All right. Well, thanks for listening. And uh, please subscribe. Thank you for Stefan. My pleasure. Visiting. And Alex, Absolutely. once again, another episode with Alex. And uh, by the way, Carlos hasn't gone anywhere. We, he's just uh, very busy up in Chicago. But uh, he'll definitely be recording a future episode sometime in the near future. Um, please check out our Facebook page, Cluster Fudge. Look us up there. And uh, also the website, orlandopodcast.net. Until next time, see you soon. <laughs>